you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be in Matthew chapter 7 today. And good morning and welcome. Isn't it a good day to be together Sunday as we gather together as God's people to fellowship together, to um, encourage one another, to worship together the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, to instruct and teach and encourage all the things that we do when we gather together. You know, one thing I'll just... uh, open, like share with you something that we talked about as elders uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, we talked about the desire that we have as elders to have a stronger culture of Sunday school. And I don't know, I don't know how that strikes you. I know a lot of people don't like the term Sunday school. You think of it as a kid's thing. We, I, don't, I don't care about the term. You can call it life groups. You can call it whatever you want. Sunday school, we call it that because, yeah, we, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> but, uh, the reason we want to strengthen that culture, and I'm saying it for a couple of reasons here this morning. The reason we want to strengthen that culture is because it's such a good time to grow together as believers. So what we do in, in Sunday school is we, we, we're basically broken up into smaller groups of people. You know, like there's a, there's a, a main kind of co-ed class, adult class that meets here in the worship center. There is a, a, a college ladies group that meets uh, in the cry room over there. And there's a college men's group that meets across the way there in that new office that we built. I think that's where they're meeting right now. Yeah. And then there's uh, a youth, youth has a class in there and all ages. It's such a good time. Child care is provided. I mean, there's classes going on for every age group. And we get together and we study God's word. And it's such a, and you, and you know, here's the thing. Uh, one reason I'm saying this, it, it's so easy to do because you're already coming to Shadron. Like you're already coming to church, right? Just come an hour early. Nine o'clock is when we start these. So it's easy and good. And, uh, the, and so I, the two reasons I'm, I'm, I'm saying it this morning. One is I want to encourage you to, to help us strengthen that culture of Sunday. I know, I know in our like it hasn't been a, a strong culture uh, in this area of Sunday school. I want to ask you to help us to strengthen that culture of Sunday school by, by coming and committing to that hour, nine, nine to 10 o'clock. Uh, and the other reason I'm saying is because I was so encouraged this morning after our class. I mean, that's, that's really the main reason why it's on my mind. I was so encouraged as we studied Colossians and we thought about the preeminence of Christ and we, we talked about all lesser things and how they, how, they, how they don't pale in comparison to a hope that is firm and rooted in Christ. And I, I came away from that super encouraged and strengthened and I come up here this morning wanting you to experience that on a Sunday morning with me. All right, so here we are, Matthew chapter 7, and uh, really just one verse today, verse, verse, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, let's read this verse. I'll, I'll read it. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray again. Father, we come to you because we know that if you don't move, nothing gets moved. If you don't stir hearts, no heart gets stirred. If you don't do the miracle of new life, there's no life. So Father, we come to you asking that you would move in this place today, in our hearts, in my heart, in in these, that we wouldn't just hear things. They didn't, they wouldn't, just enter our minds, but never affect our hearts, never affect our lives. 
Father, I pray that you would move in such a way that your word just has its way in us. It changes us. It convicts us of our sin. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in the gospel. And it strengthens us to leave here desiring to obey your word in every sphere of our lives. And Lord, as always, we we pray together for those who are hurting. And I know some are acutely hurting this week, that this was a hard, hard week for some. And so, Father, I pray for your grace on them, the ones I have in mind and others, Lord, that I don't even know about, perhaps. Please help them. Please encourage them. Please uplift them. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me to, to handle your word well, to preach it the way that it is, and to let it have its effect. Help me to get out of the way, be forgotten, and may your word be everything. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think makes a good sermon? What, what, what do you think is, are the elements, or what do you think defines? Like, like on Sunday afternoon, when you're like gathered together with your family, what is it that makes you think, man, that was a really good sermon, or... or or not. <laughs> what is it? What is the criteria for a really good sermon? I put that on, on my social media asking that question. Got a lot of answers there. You can go check those answers. I won't share any of those. I, one of my favorite answers uh, was a friend of mine from Florida who said, when the preacher is forgotten and the word is everything. Right, that was good. That was a good answer. But there are other answers there. But what do you think makes a sermon interesting I, or good? I, I think some would say, interest. Like if it's interesting, then it's good. Like if it, if it keeps my interest, it's a good sermon. Or if it makes me think. Or if it makes me feel good or helps lift my spirits. Helps if it's funny. Maybe good if it has good sports illustrations. Sorry, just in advance. <laughs> the reality is that a terrible sermon can be very interesting. You know that, right? A terrible, awful, ungodly sermon can captivate our attention. It can make me feel good. It can make me think. It could lift my spirit. It could make me laugh. Much of what I would call bad preaching in our day is very interesting, and it is preached by very good communicators. So, communicators. So, so those things don't necessarily make a sermon good. I'm not saying those are bad things. They don't necessarily make a sermon good. So what does make a sermon good? I tell guys who are thinking about preaching that they should focus on doing two things really well in the preaching act. When it comes to preaching, they should focus on doing two things really well. First, they should strive to explain what a passage of the Bible says, what it means. They should, to use a seminary term, exposit the text. A passage. A good sermon is one that explains in a way that is clear and accurate the main idea of the passage that's being preached. I I think that's what one of the things that makes for a good sermon. It helps us to understand what that passage is about. Obviously, that assumes that a good sermon is on an actual passage, right? It's not just a bunch of ideas thrown out there, maybe supported here and there by scripture, but it's actually explaining the scriptures. I I think a good sermon is that. That's the first thing. The second thing is that a good sermon makes it clear how we should apply it to our lives. How that passage, the truth in that passage should affect us. How we should respond to it. What it should shape and change and conform. 
Now, of course, sometimes that will be broad and general, and sometimes that is narrow and specific. But a sermon is not a good sermon, or arguably not a sermon at all, if it doesn't point us to the way that we should respond to God's word. So the two things I aim for every Sunday, I'm sure I do that some Sundays better than others, uh, but the thing I aim, the two things I aim for is to make the meaning of the passage clear and to help us understand how to live it out. Those other things, things like interest, they're not unimportant, right? A boring sermon, it's hard to be helpful if if you're super boring and everyone's asleep, but I, I do know that there are many reasons why people find sermons boring. Sometimes boredom says more about the listener than the speaker, you can be bored, friend, when the most incredible, awesome realities in the universe are painted before your eyes. You can be. You can be. But, you know, a preacher shouldn't be boring. It's just got to be some kind of sin of being boring with awesome truth, right? So interest is a thing. And there's much to be said about, there's a lot more to be said about what makes for a good sermon. But at the very least, a good sermon is one that accurately explains the passage and helpfully shows us how to apply it. Now, we've been working on the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon, right? We call it a sermon. It is a sermon. Jesus is preaching. He's on a mound. He's preaching. And often I've called this the greatest sermon ever preached. I've said that almost every week for the last 30 weeks that I've preached this. And I believe that. So can I apply the same criteria to this sermon to determine whether it is a good sermon? Now, don't worry. I I wouldn't dare critique Jesus. I'm not going to go there. But thinking this through might help us see something both about preaching in general and something specifically about the Sermon on the Mount, even our passage today. Is the Sermon on the Mount a good sermon? Does Jesus explain Scripture And does he help us to apply it to our lives? To answer the first question, we have to consider differences between Jesus and the rest of all the preachers in the world. The difference is massive. Look down at verse 29, 729, Matthew 729. It says, for he, this is after he's done with his sermon, this is a response, they were astonished. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as as their scribes. The reason a preacher must preach a passage of scripture and not just talk about life is because he, the preacher, like me, I have no authority outside of the word of God. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think. It does not matter what I think, or at least it doesn't matter any more than it matters how you think. I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I'm just a person, just like you doesn't matter what I think. My views on any given thing in and of themselves are no more authoritative or binding than anyone else's. Or to put it another way, a preacher's authority begins and ends with the scriptures. The difference is that when Jesus preached, his very words were the word of God. When he, when he spoke, he spoke the word of God. Jesus doesn't merely preach on a passage, say from the Old Testament. He, his words are the, John called him the word. But even so, the Sermon on the Mount does open to a scripture, doesn't it? I mean, massively so. I mean, he's not preaching just from like an Old Testament passage and expositing it in a broad way. What he's doing, he is opening our minds to what the Bible teaches in the bigger picture of things. 
I mean, he's teaching us in the broadest possible terms what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God and true righteousness and the point of the law and the prophets. In fact, Jesus unpacks the law of God in a way that no one else had ever done. And he did it powerfully. This is, in that sense, an expositional sermon. Jesus is expositing what the kingdom is, what it looks like, what righteousness is, what it means to be truly righteous. So it's a good sermon on that count. In fact, it's the best. Jesus taught as one with authority. He opened our minds to the very word of God in the Sermon on the Mount. But what about application? Does he go there? Does he help us to apply? Like, how should we respond to this? I mean, at every turn, yes, everybody agrees. This is one of the most practical sermons ever preached. This is the most life-changing, life-transforming sermon. Jesus rocks our world, reshapes our love, and then sends us out to go and love and serve and forgive. So Jesus nails it on that score too. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus opens our eyes to God's word. And he graciously shows us how we should apply it to our lives. And it matters massively to your life and to mine. This is a truly good sermon. And today's text, where I'm going with this, today's text is one of the most potent applications in the scripture and in the sermon. Here Jesus makes plain one of the big ways to live this sermon out. And it's radical. On, on first read, you might think it's simple. I, I, I have thought it's simple. But it deserves a careful thought, and I hope we will do that this morning. I want to help you apply one of the most potent applications to the most amazing sermon that was ever preached. And if you apply this, you know what it's going to do? It's going to radically change your life. And the lives of those around you If we collectively apply this, like if we apply this as a church, it's going to radically change us. And Shadron and the world, this will make an impact. And one that is so good for us and so glorifying to God. The application is this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do unto them. So let's pretend like we haven't heard something similar to that our whole lives, put that out of our minds so it's not a block and we think this is too simple to think about deeply. And let's press into this together so that we might follow the Lord in this. Note the first word of verse 12. In the ESV, it's translated so. You could translate it therefore, and I think that's a bit better. The opening word, at least in English, is the second word in Greek, but in the, the opening word here makes it clear that what follows in verse 12 flows up from what precedes verse 12. That's what therefores do, right? Are you following? In other words, the therefore in verse 12 helps us to see that this is not a standalone thought. This is not a proverb. It's not a self-contained, encapsulated truth. This is an application of a truth that Jesus has taught and an application of bigger things as we'll see. So naturally the question is whether the therefore reaches back to the entire Sermon on the Mount or is like, is this one of the summary applications to everything Jesus has been teaching since Matthew 5, 1? Or whether this is an application of what immediately precedes it, what we see in that famous 
ask and you shall receive passage that I preached on last week. My sense is that it's an application of the entire sermon, which naturally then makes it an application of verses 7 and 11, 7 through 11 of chapter 7 as well. Let me, let me try and show you that. If you take the sum of everything Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, then it becomes very clear how the formula for obeying it, I mean, it comes from it. I mean, just take his teaching on anger or lust or forgiveness or on mercy or on genuine, unhypocritical righteousness or on being, not being judgmental. I mean, the application for all of those are particular aspects of godliness, right? Each one of those, like don't be angry, don't hate, don't, don't lust. Particular aspects of godliness that can be summarized together here, right? Do unto others as you would wish that they would do to you. In fact, as we'll see in a bit, all of the law can be summarized with those two commands, or with the two commands, Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul, strength, mind, all that. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second of those two great commandments. And they summarize in Jesus' teaching everything about the law and the prophets. Loving my neighbor as myself doesn't leave room for anger. Right? Doesn't leave room for hatred or retribution or lust or abuse or unforgiveness or lack of mercy or judgmentalism. Verse 12 is a broad and sweeping way to apply all of the truth that Jesus has been teaching in the sermon. And if you consider just what precedes this sermon, you can see that verse 12 is also an application of trusting God in everything in our lives. The reason we don't feel free to just love others with abandon is because we feel like we have to protect ourselves. The barrier to doing unto others as you would have done unto yourself is in your mind, you think you have to protect yourself. We want to be nice people, but we don't want our stuff to get stolen. Because if we don't, if we don't look after ourselves, who will, right? As we talked about last week, we have this, this privilege of, of, uh, as God's children to come to him as our father through Jesus Christ and bring our needs to him. We can ask, we can seek, we can knock. And when we do, we receive and we find and the doors open to us. The Father gives good gifts to those who ask. Therefore, you are free from the natural, innate, fallen desire to simply look after yourself. You are free because of God's care for you. You are free to love others. So I think that therefore in verse 12 makes it clear that this is both a summary application to all the Sermon on the Mount and a very specific application to verses 7 through 11. This is a very important therefore. This is how we live out the transformed life, transformed by God's grace. Now, the command itself strikes people as being really simple, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that strike you as simple? or maybe simplistic, the negative word, simple can't be, it's, it's not bad necessarily, but simplistic. So simple, in fact, that you might wonder how I can spend an entire sermon on this. Like, how can you preach for, you know, three hours on one verse? Isn't this something we've heard since we were children? Isn't this something we tell our children? I mean, we know this, right? I mean, come on. Isn't this simplistic? Isn't this a truth we even, even the world teaches? Did you know, did you know that in every major world religion and lots and lots of minor world religions, there's something very similar to this sentiment. 
Did you know that? Did you know that in every major worldview on the planet, there is something similar to this sentiment and it's, 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 it's pushed forward as a virtue. You, you see this in Buddhism. Buddhism has almost something very similar to this. Confucianism has something very similar to this. I had a conversation about morality one day with a brilliant man who was a committed humanist, educated, strong humanist. And he summed up his, we were talking about morality because I was trying to, I was trying to get at him about where morality comes from. That's where, what we were talking about. And he said, he, he summed up his humanistic morality with, this, with a sentiment very similar to this. And he made his case for why a rule like that doesn't have to come from anywhere. It's just merely pragmatic. Like, this is how we get along on this meaningless planet. I mean, so such an encouraging worldview, right? This is how we make the most out of our meaninglessness. Unbelieving parents and teachers tell children something similar to this on the playground the world over. I mean, before I was even a parent, I told kids this. Like, uh, one day, somebody asked me to watch their kids. I don't know what they were thinking, but they did. They asked me to watch their kids. I'm watching their kids. They're playing on this uh, beach next to a pond. I'm like reading a book thinking watching kids isn't so bad. I look up for my book, and the older of the two is holding a fire truck above the littler of the two, right? Like a big metal fire truck, and he's about to clobber him. So I'm like, hey, Drew, stop, stop. And I, I run over there, and he throws it into the pond. (laughs) <laughs> it's brilliant, right? And I'm like, where's the fire truck? Yeah. And, and what do I say? I say, hey, do you like to be hit with a fire truck? Well, then don't hit so other people with fire trucks. I mean, that's what parents say, right? That's what people say. That's what teachers, that's what everyone says. What's so radical about this? What is so radical about the golden rule What is so radical about this is that while there are other similar sentiments to this the world over in nearly every religion, this goes beyond them all. Stay with me. The similar sentiment, popular and accepted worldwide, is not whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, but rather it is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And there is a world of difference between the two. This is what teachers and parents tell a child. Would you want him to hit you? Don't hit him. You don't want people to steal your stuff? Don't steal. Don't bully if you don't like to be bullied. You don't like to be abused? Don't abuse people. It's not wrong. It's not wrong at all. That's, that's a healthy sentiment. Widely accepted in our world though. True. I don't take any issue with it at all. But you know what I think? I think it's a microscopic part of this. It's, it's a microscopic, it's microscopic sense, it's a microscopic sentiment compared to the enormity of the truth that Jesus is teaching. Jesus is not merely teaching the negative. Don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. But the positive, whatever you would wish that others would do to you, do that to them. If, 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 if the negative is the rule you live by, you have no real obligation to anyone You don't actually have to care about anyone else. You don't have to love anyone. In fact, you could obey that while steering clear from everyone. 
You could just keep to yourself. You could go live in a cabin in the woods and be that grumpy old guy who never harms anyone. You could be a monk. You could be a hermit and just vow never. I'm never going to hurt anyone else. You can make that vow and you're golden. Except that that is not the golden rule. If you, it, 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 it's, it's merely the negative, it's an negative implication of the, of the golden rule. If the golden rule were a football team, the world's version would only have defensive players, no offensive team at all. And there you have it. I have told a sports illustration in my sermon. You better mark the day. It's not good or interesting, but I've done it. But ponder for a moment with me the difference. The actual golden rule does not allow you to be indifferent to the needs of others, does it? The actual golden rule does not merely call you not to harm others. It actually calls you to do good to others. It calls you to be concerned for the need of others, to, to love others. The humanist might do well to insist on causing no harm. But that is such a small part of this. The gospel calls Christians not merely to not harm our neighbors, but to love them. It's massively different and awesome in its scope. I was thinking about what I wished others would do to me and how that ought to inform the way I interact with others. I wish that others would love me, right? I, I wish that they would accept me, to be kind to me, to be gracious to me when I fail. I wish that others would help me up when I stumble, and show concern for the things that I struggle with. I wish that others would notice me and affirm me and be there for me. In short, I wish that others would love me. I do not wish that others would just do me no harm. No one really wants to just be left alone. Not really. This is a call to radical, unworldly love towards others. And it's rooted in all of the Bible and rooted in the gospel itself. Look with me at the end of verse 12. I want to show you how these two things, I want to show you those two things I just mentioned, how it's rooted in all of the Bible and in the gospel itself. Verse 12 says, I'll read it again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets went way beyond that though, right? I mean, don't the law and the prophets, I mean, you ever read, you do your Bible reading plan, you read through Leviticus, the law seems to go a lot broader than this. So how is this the law and the prophets? I, you know, it's not the first time, it's not the only time Jesus talks about this. Uh, in another place, he says it more fully. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You don't have to flip there, but we'll display it. I'll read it. Here Jesus says, you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and the prophets. You know, cities look very different from the ground than they do from the air, don't they? I mean, you've been in airplanes, you know that. On the ground, you walk through New York City, Manhattan. Like, you're just looking up, buildings looks very different when you take off out of LaGuardia and you get up above it and you see it as it is the city itself on the ground you just see streets bridges buildings from the airplane you see the city and the sense of the city gets a lot bigger than just the individual houses and and buildings and bridges you see the city and it's all together New York 
If you, if you read through the law and the prophets, you'll notice many individual rules and prohibitions and revelations and so on. That's like walking on the ground through the city, looking up at all the tall buildings. When you get into an airplane, an airplane like the Sermon on the Mount, you see the whole city. And all the law and the prophets look like this, loving God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Or to put that second part another way, to do to others as you would wish that they would do to you. So the golden rule is rooted in the message of the entire Bible. It is, as Jesus taught, the law and the prophets. And it is also rooted in the gospel. And I know that because this is not the first time. You got to track with me here because I'm, I'm going to talk theology for a few moments and then we're going to talk practical. This is not the first time that Jesus used the phrase, the law and the prophets. Flip back a page to Matthew five seventeen. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I mean, he's the city. They're all about him. They all point to him. They all find their ultimate meaning in him. They find their fulfillment in him which I think means that they are fulfilled in his life, in his teaching, and in his substitutionary death on the cross, and in his resurrection. That's where they all find their fullest meaning. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We don't turn to the law and the prophets to be saved, do we? No, we turn to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets to be saved. We turn to, the, to Christ. We turn to Jesus by faith. We believe in him. We trust him. In that glorious fulfillment of the law and the prophets, we find forgiveness of our sins. We find justification before a holy God. And that's such an incredible thought if you're a sinner. Justification before a holy God, like standing before the judge of all creation, your sin known, and being justified because Christ paid for it. Being declared not guilty because of the righteousness of Christ and the new life that lasts in him forever. We find all of that in the fulfillment of Christ. That good news, that gospel unites us to God and reconciles us and redeems us and makes us new. And that's a reality that's true about everyone who is trusting in Christ today. In other words, if you are trusting in Christ today, that's true about you. If your hope is in him and not in your good works or your good deeds or just being a good person, just not doing harm to other people, if your hope is in Christ. And if you put this together, you can see how the golden rule is rooted in incredible realities, in deep and awesome grace. Jesus says, doing unto others what you would have do unto you is the law and the prophets. This is the outworking or the application of the law and the prophets. And Jesus also said that he came to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when you put that together, you see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of, among other things, the golden rule being lived out in your life. You follow? Or just let me cut to the chase and say it as simply as I know how. The gospel so transforms our lives that in the end, our lives look by God's grace like verse 12. 
like radical love to others, like doing to others what we would want them to do to us. I mean, I think that's amazing. Me loving my neighbor is the work of Christ in me. It is, it is God through his spirit moving and changing me to be concerned. Like, I'm not naturally concerned. God moves in me to make me concerned for my neighbor, less with my own needs, knowing I can trust God for those and more with the needs of those around me. It is Christ in me moving and motivating and empowering and transforming me to love other people. The golden rule comes together in Christ and in his work in us by the spirit of God producing radical otherworldly love. And that's why you can see that the worldly maxim is insufficient. It's like child's play. This is what the gospel does. Our love for others is the beautiful work of Christ in us. And I, you know, you gotta ask, can, can others see that beautiful work in you, friend? Can they see it? Not just in how you talk about yourself, not just in how you say, you know, I'm a Christian. Can they see the radical, other-centered love in you that Christ has, has, has produced and is producing? Can they see that beautiful work in you? Can they see it in our church? Sermon on the Mount is wonderful. It's a good sermon. It's a truly good sermon. Jesus unpacks for us the biggest truths in the universe. I mean, he's, he's unpacking before our eyes the meaning of all of the Bible. The law and the prophets, he came to fulfill and he points us to a way to live it all out, to live out the work of Christ in us. This is a good sermon. And therefore, I think we should be serious in how we consider applying it. Let me suggest three ways as we press into this for our lives. First, let's consider how we want to be treated, how we like to be loved and considered and affirmed and encouraged and cared for. Think about that and think about it honestly. Uh, don't do this, guys. Men especially do this. Don't think, man, you know what I wish? I wish everyone would just leave me alone. <laughs> it's not really true. You know, sure, men, especially women too, probably, sometimes want to just be left alone. But my sense is that we isolate ourselves because we fear being harmed, not because we fear being loved. We all desire to be loved and accepted. You desire that. You want that. So ponder that. And then second, use that as a measure for the way you should love others. I want to be loved and accepted I am called to love and accept. You see? Straight correlation. I want, I, I wish that others would show me grace. I am called to show grace to others. I am, I want to be noticed. I'm called to notice. And so on. And it's very broad. But you know what? I think it should govern everything about our everyday life. It's a broad rule that should govern the way that I talk to my friends or spend time with people. How I react when people say terrible things. The way I do business. This is the question we can ask in every situation. How do I wish that people would treat me? And what? In this thing or in that thing. And then by God's grace and 
through the enabling power of his spirit. Let's do this. This is the third thing. Let's do this, Ridgeview. Let's be so radical in the way that we love others that we leave those close to us scratching their heads with wonder and amazement. And that way, show them that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world who has transformed us. He's made us new. We are, he utterly transforms all those whose faith is in him. Unless you think that, this, that if you do this too much, you will be vulnerable, because I know that's the, that's the big obstacle, right? Vulnerability. We don't want to be vulnerable. You'll think your needs won't be met if I just think about everybody else's needs. No one will pay me back in kind. Or something like that. Go back to verses 7 through 11 and preach those to your soul. You can trust God with all of it. You can ask, you can seek, and you can knock. Your father will take care of you. Just ask. He knows how to give good things to those who ask. You are free. And so you're free to go love others. So do an inventory of your relationships. Your siblings. Your parents. Your roommates. Your children. Your spouses. Your ex-spouses. Your professors. Your employers. Your employees. Your business partners. Your literal neighbors, people you interact with online or through your work or whatever. And in those relationships, friends, don't just settle for the worldly axiom. Don't merely commit yourself to not harming them. That's not enough. God calls you to so much more. Turn to God, trust him to do this amazing work, to live out what he has accomplished in you so that you not only live by that axiom, like that's a part of it. I don't want to harm anyone, but you want to love. That is the work of God in us. That is the work of Christ through his spirit. That is what we are called to. That is the robust gospel version of this. That is the golden rule and it is golden. All that you would wish that others would do to you, do to them. I just want to encourage you, friend. Number one, Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. The only way a person is changed so that they can actually love is through Christ. I I can't just put this before the world and say, do this. This is outside of you. This is a miracle. So I want to put this before you with the gospel. Trust in Christ. And then let him have his way with you. Let the sermon have its way with you. Let's pray. Father, would that we would be a people who love others as we are called to by this amazing sermon. Would that we would go from this place seeking with all of our hearts and by the grace that you show us in Christ to live out what you've called us to live out, to do to others as we would wish that they would do to us, to love unconditionally. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.